Around the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and on this day of, I'd say, light NBA news, just enough to get us through an episode, I think, I'm joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfock. What's up, Cash? Well, I think what's up is that we might finally stay true to our word of bringing people a short episode and giving ourselves less work to do, uh, because nothing seismic out there. Some of our season preview type content, we're still going to save till probably starting next week. So what we're left with this week is just kind of picking up some of the scraps left out there news-wise. And uh, speaking of scraps, let's start with the NBA's biggest fool, Kyrie Irving. Why, why is that speaking of scraps? What's the relevance of that? Because he's just like scraps to me now. Like he's not even <laughs> worth Like he's not. That's why. Kyrie Irving, just days after sharing a video on Instagram of Alex friggin' Jones and uh, a 20-year-old conspiracy there, tweeted on Tuesday a long tweet about his belief that people should not be held back from work due to their vaccine status, but ended that tweet with, quote-unquote, this enforced vaccine-slash-pandemic is one of the biggest violations of human rights in history. Human rights, all caps. Uh, A lot wrong, obviously, with that sentiment, starting with the fact that there have been unspeakable atrocities when it comes to human rights littered throughout human history, including in our lifetime, ongoing in our lifetime. And for someone to think that a vaccine mandate uh, and also a quote-unquote enforced pandemic, I guess that's also him alluding to his usual conspiracy theories that the, you know, like the pandemic itself is something being enforced upon us. But anyway, to consider uh, vaccine mandates or anything related to the pandemic as anywhere near the magnet. First of all, considering it a human rights violation at all is, I mean, I guess that's a debate for another day, but considering it a human rights violation anywhere near on the level of some of the atrocities I hinted to, to the point where you're saying it's one of the worst human rights violations in human history is just like, uh, it's insane that we're having to talk about this in a basketball podcast, but such is, you know, life when Kyrie Irving is in the basketball league you cover, because I don't really know, you know, what's left to say about this guy that we haven't already said. If you recall years ago, when we first started this podcast, Pound the Rock was a three-man weave between you, myself, and Will Lou. I think very early on in those podcast days might have been around the time Kyrie's flat earth conspiracy uh, theory first came to light. And at the time, if you recall, and a lot of people thought I was heavy handed at the time, I originally said that when he said that, that he truly believed the earth might be flat, that I would never take him seriously again, that I could never respect what he says ever again. And then over time, you know, you soften you know, we saw some of the humanitarian work he did. There was always the the give and take with Kyrie where it's like he he said very idiotic things, but he also did very meaningful things off the court. And we've always had to talk about, and rightfully so, had to talk about the fact that one doesn't cancel out the other. He can be an idiot and you still acknowledge the good things he's done. You can acknowledge the good things he's done and also acknowledge that he's an idiot. But you, mu- I'm sorry, I don't care how much of a fan of Kyrie Irving you are. You must acknowledge that he is an idiot. When people show you how dumb they are and that they're an idiot believe them just like the saying goes when someone shows you or tells you who they are believe them Kyrie very much fits into the old adage that the dumbest person in the room is often the loudest because they don't realize that they're the dumbest person in the room he's too stupid to realize that not everyone else is as stupid as him and then at the same time I don't know maybe a lot of it with him is just about attention maybe he likes the fact that the idiotic things he says get such a rise out of people I feel like He's gone out of his way to try and position himself as some kind of thought leader in the past and in the present. Like he has this whole like, you know, think different mentality. You know, he doesn't talk to puppets or whatever it was that he said about the NBA media once upon a time. And like I, you know, we we have talked at various points in the past about the things that Kyrie has done that we support, that we agree with. But stuff like this really just makes it seem like w- when he does those good things, when he makes the the good points that he makes, it feels like he stumbles on those things almost by accident. Yeah, broken clock is right twice a day. And he's destined to undercut it with, you know, inane nonsense like this. And 
I don't like. I don't want to use the word like a strong language coming from you talking about like idiocy and he's an idiot. No, Wolf on, I'm sorry, he's an idiot. Tell, tell me fine. how I'm wrong. If if anyone else that wasn't in the league that we cover, where we otherwise try to stay professional, and I understand that part of it. Yeah. If it was anyone else you ran into on the street, a friend of yours, someone you knew, a coworker, and they yeah. said the things Kyrie Irving said, would you not say that guy's an idiot? I would, but in that case, it would be somebody that I knew, and I would feel a little bit more comfortable like making that type of designation. How much more do you have to hear from this guy before you're comfortable making that? I mean, I don't want to get in an argument about whether Kyrie Irving's an idiot. I'm just saying, I it's a, it's I semantics. It's semantics. I understand but, your sentiment. Yeah, and I do in general, as you know, when it comes to like other than criticizing their play, I think both of us try to stay very professional when it comes to like the personal side of things. I always have, and I always will. I think there are very rare cases when it goes beyond that, and I think Kyrie Irving is that very rare case. Like I said, when someone continues to show and tell you very loudly that they are an idiot, when they are spreading Alex Jones conspiracy theory videos. First of all, within days or weeks of Alex Jones being ordered to pay damages to families of children who were slaughtered in mass homicide attacks that Alex Jones claimed were staged. When you're spreading that guy's conspiracy theories within weeks of that news, when you're tweeting that a vaccine mandate is one of the worst human rights violations in in history, then I think anyone who hears you and reads you say that is well within their rights to say this guy is an absolute buffoon, an idiot, clueless, dumb, whatever you want to say. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would, I would describe him as like willfully ignorant, extremely misinformed and extremely clueless about uh, a lot of things going on in the world. And like, I, you would think that somebody who had gone to stand with Sioux protesters, you know, like to, trying to prevent their lands from being expropriated and used for like the Dakota access pipeline like that in itself. Like you, if you're there and you understand what those people are going through, like you should have at least some sense of perspective about what does and doesn't constitute a human rights atrocity. I don't know. It's just surprising to me that like, maybe it shouldn't be surprising at this point. In fact, it's not, but have always struggled to sort of wrap my head and my arms around like the, confounding person that is Kyrie Irving. And I think, yeah, this, this just makes it extremely difficult to support him in any endeavor in word or deed, because it just, it can't help but feel disingenuous. Yes. Like when, when, when he is kind of revealed what seems to be his true natures, that that's all I'll say. And like, I don't disagree with anything you said. And like, I'm not going to, Say that, like, he, if you want, if you think he's an idiot, completely stupid, dumb, whatever. Like, if if that's the language you want to use, I'm not going to like fight you on that. But I just think that he is, yeah, willfully ignorant and like is getting some really bad information. Uh, and like th- that's on him. He is a like a, a a wealthy individual who has access to any amount of information that. You know, if if he wanted to find it, it's out there for him to find. Uh, and uh, he he has seemingly um, chosen his path, I guess, which is an unfortunate one. And like the, I, I guess the galling thing, and this is in no way like a, a me vouching for him, like a, a show of support for Kyrie Irving. But like, there was a point at which I had like the the most grudging kind of respect for him in yep. that he clearly cared about this issue enough. Maybe it's that, or maybe he just didn't care about basketball enough, but the fact that he was able, like he was willing to forego lucrative paycheck after lucrative paycheck was willing to sit out an entire NBA season, you know, until they like changed the, the vaccine mandate in New York city. Like there was no indication that he was actually going to like get the vaccine and come back and play. Like he was willing to sit out the entire year and forsake an entire year's salary in order to stand on this principle. It was a terrible principle. Like, it, you know, he, it was an idiotic cause for him to be martyring himself. But he at least had the the strength in his conviction, as flimsy as that conviction may have been, uh, to, to, like, stand behind it. As opposed to, you know, like these other, like the other athletes, like baseball players, for instance, who, for whatever reason, like, would go a year and a half without getting vaccinated, like staunchly refused to do it, but then 
when it came time to like, oh, well, you have to like get vaccinated in order to play for the Blue Jays or in order to enter Canada yeah, just, and just, play in an important series. Just call Whit Merrifield out by name. Well, it wasn't just him, right? There were like all the players on the Yankees who yeah. got themselves vaccinated in time to like cross the border and play and play an important divisional series against the Jays. It's like if that's all it was, like if that's all it took, then what like what it's just like own your bullshit. You know what yeah. I mean? And Kyrie was at least willing to own his bullshit. And there was, so when I say it was like the most grudging kind of respect, I I don't respect his viewpoints or his position at all, but I at least could respect the fact that he was willing to stand behind it, even at the cost of, you know, his career, his earnings, all that stuff that seemingly these other athletes were not willing to forego in service of, you know, whatever point they were trying to make or whatever reason they had for not wanting to get vaccinated in the first place. So that's all I'll say. And I, I mean, that's like the best thing that I can say about him right now is like he had the the courage to, to, to like stand behind his extremely idiotic convictions. For anyone who maybe hasn't been listening, you know, for the full four years when I referenced my earlier comments about Kyrie when he first revealed his flat earth beliefs or, you know, has just tuned in the last few episodes and their first time hearing me talk about Kyrie Irving was call, me calling him an idiot or dumb and thinking I, I now have some weird agenda against him or anything. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago. I think it was early in the pandemic or maybe even 2021. Anyway, the title was Kyrie's Back, But Why Was His Absence So Polarizing? I'd encourage anyone to go read that piece I wrote just in case they do think there's any grudge there because at the time, like that was around the time when he had that absence in the middle of the 2020-2021 season and he came back. Uh, and I wrote about it after his first game back. And I think if you read that post, you'll see that it's never personal with Kyrie. I'm very willing, again, to acknowledge all facets of Kyrie. And at the time, I think if you read that feature or column, I think I was actually somewhat going to bat for him. You know, there are reporters that I call out by name in that piece for their tr- kind of the way they covered that absence. So basically what I'm trying to say is this is not just me hating on Kyrie for no particular reason. Um, like I said, I just think at the same time, when someone's, when someone like jumps off the ledge of idiocy to the degree that he has, we're not just talking about he's saying something basketball related we don't agree with, or he's just saying, I don't want to take the vaccine. Like he has, in my opinion, gone to such lengths to almost like throw his stupidity in our face that um, again, I, I think it's okay to acknowledge that, you know, without necessarily ignoring other things he's done. Last thing on the Kyrie matter, if we want to somehow bring it to basketball, and I'm well aware that this might be me taking a leap, but I'm going to take that leap. When I see him or read him, however you want to phrase it, I guess, because he tweeted it, still being like this, you know, the whole part with the Nets about the ifs, obviously, if this guy's healthy, if this guy's in the right front line, if this guy ends up playing this many, like, and Kyrie's obviously one of those guys. <laughs> when I see, like, this stuff from Kyrie, it makes, even though it has nothing to do with basketball, it makes me jump to the conclusion, like, okay, it's same old Kyrie, which means once the season starts, it's going to be same old Kyrie, which means at some point, you're going to have to expect whether it's, like, a random absence or him not feeling like playing, like, whatever the case may be. And, again, I'm acknowledging that that is a that is a bit of a leap to take to go from, okay, he's tweeting stupid things. And therefore I think we can assume it'll be the same old Kyrie when the season starts from like a game's miss perspective and stuff. But I also don't think it's that crazy to make that connection given all we know and have seen with Kyrie. Well, sorry, what, what type of connection specifically? That when you see him tweeting these things in the outer, like just the Alex Jones, like all of it, just him being his usual kind of weird self on social media that it leads me to believe he's still going to be that guy when the season starts, the same Kyrie we know in the last few years. And if it's that guy, even though what we're talking about right now isn't specific to basketball, but if it's that same guy, then it probably means he's the same guy that's going to be randomly missing games, Mm. you know, not exactly into it for like three months of the year. And that in and of itself would then affect the Nets, who we obviously everyone acknowledges so much of their ceiling reliant on these huge ifs related to their stars. I don't see necessarily the the causal relationship between those two things. Like, I think it's totally possible he just goes out and balls out, you know, like plays 70 games and plays extremely well. Uh, and that, I mean, that won't say anything about the kind of person that he is. I think that's maybe the, the takeaway here. Like he, the things that he had said and done in the past that we didn't agree with did not remove the validity of like his reasons for wanting to step away from the basketball court in the past 
And by the same token, whatever willingness he has to play basketball this year, if he wants to like buy back in and give his all to the Brooklyn Nets and plays like an all-star or an all nba and like leads them to a deep playoff run or championship even, you know, by the same token, that will not uh, change, you know, the way that we feel about who he's revealed himself to be as a person. You know, I actually don't see the connection between those two things. And I think if he does go through something similar where he does need to take some time away from basketball just because it's not doing it for him, it's not scratching whatever itch he has at that particular moment, then I don't know that I will necessarily draw a parallel between that and this. You know, I think he can have his own reasons for wanting to do that. And I don't think it needs to be colored by, uh, you know, whatever views he's been expressing over the last few months or few years. Mm -hmm. Real, real quick last Kyrie note to end it uh, with a moment of levity. I did want to point out the best tweet I saw yesterday was uh, goes by Rachel Dolezal, a play on Rachel Dolezal at Sir Coach on Twitter, who quote tweeted Kyrie's tweet that I referenced with a gif of like a, a zoom in on a clown walking up the stairs. So it was like the zoom in on the clown's feet and the shoes with the tweet, new Kyrie's just dropped. <laughs> Thought that was perfect. But anyway, to your point about his or anyone else's need to take time away to take care of their mental health. One of the changes potentially coming to the CBA, in addition to the fact that the draft age eligibility might drop from 19 to 18 as early as the 2024 NBA draft, is that there could be a mental health designation coming on the injury report, which would allow players to cite mental health issues the same way they would an injury. It is definitely, I think, a positive and progressive step that the NBA could be taking that I think is in line uh, with the modern world, obviously not just the sports world. The one question I would have is I wonder, I wonder what the logistics would be in terms of like, I don't I wonder if there would be protocols in place, you know, would they, I, I don't know, would teams require some sort of, and a doctor's note might be a really vague way to put it, but would, would teams require some sort of, I, I don't know, doctor's confirmation or not, or would it simply be any player could say, I'm not feeling it today. And then they're, you know, cited as out, for mental health purposes, I do think that's the only, while I support the initiative wholeheartedly, I do also wonder what kind of steps the teams might put in place to ensure that it, the designation is not used improperly. Well, what would really be the difference between that and how things work now, apart from, you know, if it's an unexcused absence, right. and then presumably the team would be able to withhold salary. But even then, like, Ben Simmons won his arbitration case, or I don't know if it was even like that contentious, but ultimately he got paid out for the salary they withheld from him last season, did he not? But now if there's a designation, you wouldn't be able to dock pay, right? Like it would be considered. Well, that's exactly my point. That would be the only difference. And so from that perspective, yeah, I mean, maybe the teams would ask for like that player to speak to an in-house psychologist, I guess get whatever confirmation they felt like they needed in order to verify that this player is actually dealing with something but I, that to me feels a little bit unnecessary because who isn't going through something you know at some point like who doesn't need a mental health break at some point like why i just feel like taking that step it would feel a little bit draconian to me where it's like okay do you like you really need like this evidence that i i'm like not feeling it like most of these players want to play of course and I don't think it's like suddenly they're going to have this new injury related designation for like a mental health break. And suddenly you're just going to see all these players sitting out because because they're lazy, because they don't want to play, because like they don't like these. I think for the most part, people enjoy their jobs, you know, and like have obviously a, a competitive spirit that drives them to excel in their field. And I would think that if one of those players, you know, one of the, I mean, we're talking about like, you know, 450 best basketball players on planet earth, you know, to think about what it takes for anybody to get to that point. Like there is a toll. I would have no issue believing that any one of those players would be genuine in their desire to take a break for one reason or another. And I don't think, you know, demanding some kind of verification or clarification would be a necessary step. Now I say that not, you know, 
I was just like, a, I have no skin in that game, right? I'm not the team that would have to pay that player out for sitting out an indeterminate amount of time. That's where I was going with this. Not necessarily whether you think there should be, because that's not what I was in. I, more so, I wonder what the logistics would be from the team perspective, because yeah. you know whether you and I think it's necessary for them to quote unquote prove it isn't really re- relevant. It's more so whether the team would accept that. And I guess the cynical side of me has a hard time I guess, believing that, you know, the 30 owners would just say, okay, we're going to have this now in the CBA. And there will be, I guess, from their perspective, like no checks and balances. And if a player just cites us, then okay, they will have paid time off. I guess I'm having a hard time believing that the teams, like the owners themselves would go along with that. Not whether you and I would. What's the standard then? You know, like what rises to the level of it being an excused absence? You know, like what... That's that's where it gets into like real, real gray area. And I don't, it's uncomfortable to talk about. And I guess my general point is I don't see this as something that is, that like players are going to take advantage of, Mm -hmm. you know, I think I see it as a, as a net benefit to turn it into something that I feel like could maybe get fraught where the team is, you know, whether they come out and say it or not putting a system in place where they require a, you know, let's just call it a doctor's note as a blanket term. The implication there is, well, we don't necessarily believe you. And that is, it feels like the wrong foot on which to start off when you're trying to build trust between player and team for what I see as a really important initiative to address a longstanding but long stigmatized situation. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to you know, what is often talked about when it comes to mental health concerns is that it is, you know, it's an injury that you can't see, obviously, right? If a a player is hurt, it's fought, you know, they do tests and to assess the damage. There's not necessarily, like, there are no visible ways that you can pick out, oh, this person is, is struggling with something or dealing with something, right? If they don't just come out and tell you and talk to you about it. And so, like I said, I think it's a positive and progressive step for the NBA. I'm curious about what the logistics will be, I think it'll be interesting to see how that new wrinkle in the CBA develops and how it ends up being worded or cemented. But the fact that it is coming at all, I do think is a is a positive step. Yeah. No, I mean, if like if a team was to approach a player or a player was to approach a team and say, like, I need some time off because the pressure is really getting to me, like the stress is killing me. It's I'm losing sleep like. I'm having a hard time, you know, staying away from social media and like there's so much toxicity on there. Like I I feel like any player in the NBA could say exactly that and it would be 100% truthful. Yes. I also think there are obvious mental health concerns with anyone, not just professional athletes that warrant clearly time away from work, time for yourself, time to kind of get your head right and, and feel better about yourself, the world around you, all of that. I also think when it comes to professional athletes, there are certain things that unfortunately do come with the territory that you do have to deal with. And so, you know, to that point, it's like, okay, they're all probably dealing with those pressures or the stuff they see on social media. Unfortunately to me, those things do not rise to the level of, so I'm just not going to play. Because as harsh as it sounds, if the pressures that come with being a professional athlete and the things you see on social media, if those things affect you to the point where you cannot perform or do your job, then like you probably should not be in pro sports. Yeah, I guess to that, I would say in a lot of cases, that would be the sort of natural next step right. for yes. that player. Um, and I'm not saying like, yeah, if it got to a point where a player on like a max contract just sat out and like continued to collect paychecks for like three years and never took the court again, then maybe that would be a different story. But again, that's that's where I say, like, I don't see this as something that is going to get taken advantage of. I don't really think that that is where it would go. But to your point, I guess the possibility of something like that happening is why you would want to have some kind of safeguard in place, I suppose, so that it's not the kind of thing that can be exploited. Yeah, um, and, that, and that's basically all I was getting at, that I'm curious to see how they implement that safeguard while dancing around such a delicate subject, right? Mm-hmm. That where they implement, I guess, the safeguards they want without pissing off the players at the same time while implementing something that's supposed to be for the players. It, it's just, uh, it's a delicate and fascinating subject to me in terms of how they will, I, I guess, get to this point. Well, yeah, I mean, you can kind of use the, it's maybe not a perfect example to use because 
of the nature of the situation, the fact that like Ben Simmons was demanding a trade. Right. And because of the way that sort of handcuffed the Sixers organization, but they were insisting that he speak to like an in-house sports psychologist, right? Like one of the like psychologists within the organization, which he seemingly had no interest in doing. And so maybe like that, that is what a team would insist on is just like, Hey, we're fine with you taking this time off if you feel like you need it, but we want you to speak to this person that works for us. And we saw how, how fraught that got with the Simmons situation. But again, there were all those other layers on top of that in terms of like how he'd been treated by the fans, how he felt he'd been treated by the organization, you know, his desire to a reported desire to just go and like get a fresh start elsewhere. Like it was, there was a lot more to it, I guess, than just him feeling mental burnout or uh, stress pressure the weight of expectations, any of that stuff that, uh, you know, a, a player in just like any situation with any team could be feeling at any given time. So maybe that's not a perfect example, but I could see something like that where a team would say, if you're going to be taking, you know, if you're going to be getting this like mental health designation to take time off the way that you would with any other injury, then part of you like continuing to collect a salary during that time is like you have to be speaking to an in-house psychologist. Right, right. Maybe. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, the other potential CBA change coming, and I'd argue the one that actually got the more uh, headlines was that the age minimum for draft eligibility could be lowered from 19 to 18. Uh, That would, again, allow players to come out of high school again, which they haven't been able to do since 2005. That could come as early as 2024. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, okay, so there was the Woj report that sort of contradicted the Shams report initially, right? Woj Not the first time that, that's happened. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think I'm actually, I'm more inclined to believe the Woj report, which was basically saying that like nothing is imminent and they haven't had substantive talks about that yet, but it is expected to be part of the negotiations for the next CBA. I, I think my big question is like, do either of the sides really have an incentive to get this done, like to change that rule, because I don't necessarily see the incentive apart from maybe just doing the right thing (laughs) for the players union, because I think, I mean, it's not necessarily going to mean like fewer roster spots for existing members, just because ultimately it's still 60 players getting drafted. But I think you could say if, you're now adding high school players to that pool of draft eligible players. There is certainly a chance that you could have like more rookies in the league. Like, you know, the players who don't get drafted will turn into undrafted free agent signings. And ultimately that will just mean less space for the existing members of the union. And it's always interesting to me when a player's union is in a position, like I think we saw this with baseball, you know, with like the last CBA talking about like the arbitration process and the minimum salary structure for minor league players who would be like coming up and eventually entering the league, but who aren't actually in the league yet. It's like, are you willing to stand on principle for those people for like pre-members essentially? And it's interesting to see which tack the union takes in that situation because they don't necessarily have a material incentive to do that. Do you remember, like, was there a point in time, I want to say it was like two CBAs ago, where they actually did negotiate to tie the rookie scale to the salary cap? Because I think there was a point in time where it wasn't. Right. Uh, yeah, it's been at least a couple of CBAs now. So, but, and, and like, I tried to look it up and I couldn't figure out when exactly that had actually happened. But I'm pretty sure that at some point in time, like, the players did negotiate to get the rookie scale uh, salaries like tied to the cap. Right. So that they rise year to year the same way any other contract. Yeah, exactly. Which you can say like that doesn't actually benefit the existing NBPA membership because that just means like less money to go around 
for them, the existing members. And yet they still, they still fought for that. So uh, maybe we'll see them do that again, just because like they think it's the right thing to do. But as I look at it, I'm like, you know, I don't necessarily see that uh, this being something that they're going to be willing to stand behind. If it means as these things usually do in a negotiation, you know, you have to give something up in order to get something. And like, is that going to be something that they're willing to actually fight for when it doesn't affect their existing membership? From the team side of things, I think, you know, I don't know if the teams have the incentive either just because of the risk factor involved in drafting high schoolers and then the resources required to do it. Like it would probably mean teams having to expand their scouting departments in order to like properly scout high school players and um, I don't know if teams actually want to have to do that. If that's something they want to have to worry about. So as much as it's something that's been talked about for a long time, it, it seems kind of like a difficult thing to actually execute. Yeah, I agree with that. I will say, I guess the one thing going in both sides favor, unrelated to necessarily the like CBA logistics of it, but just in general that the, I think the infrastructure for a high school kid or, you know, young adult coming into the NBA now is a lot better than it was the last time, you know, 17 years ago that we saw high school kids coming in, whether it's just how much better, you know, the then D League, now G League is, the infrastructure there, the fact that so many teams now, whether it's 28, 29, however many of them, like there's a big difference between 2005 when like five or six teams were sharing a, a D League team and not everyone had like an official affiliate. The seamlessness between the G League and the NBA is now much better and different than it was 17 years ago. The G League is much more of a breeding ground for the NBA than it was back then, whether we're talking about the fact that teams have control over what their G League teams are doing and therefore, you know, uh, teams are running similar plays and have similar cultures. And there's just, it's a more seamless experience for any player that gets sent down to the G League that has to spend time there. I'd say in general, I'm sure teams have learned a lot in the last 20 years when it comes to player development outside of the G League. Like, hmm. I think it'll be a better environment for any talent good enough to come out of high school to the NBA now than it was a couple decades ago. Now that doesn't mean every single high school, you know, kid drafted is, is going to pan out. That's just not the way it works. College kids obviously don't always pan out. Pros from international don't always pan out. There's still going to be people that fall through the cracks, but I think the obvious thing everyone sees as much as there will be maybe some pushback based on the points you brought up is that look, uh, if a player is good enough, to be drafted, if a player is good enough that an NBA team wants to give them a professional contract to play basketball because they think they're ready and good enough, then those 18-year-olds should be given the same chance they would get 12 months later, right? I wonder if the fact that because of like G League Ignite and like the number of players now that are sort of like signing overseas deals rather than going to college, like I think there are more options available to an 18-year-old player who doesn't go the college route where maybe it's not as big a priority right. as it felt like it was, you know, two, three years ago. Um, so we'll see. But I think that's it's bound to be interesting one way or another. Yep. All right. Last thing, and I guess the closest thing will come to actually talking about basketball on this episode, but it's a bummer, is that Robert Williams uh, is expected to miss four to six weeks after undergoing an arthroscopic cleanup, I believe was the way Woj referred to it in his left knee, which was surgically repaired to repair a torn meniscus in March, six months ago. Now, Williams came back pretty quickly from that, played in the playoffs, obviously, for the Celtics, was a you know huge boon to their defense, as we know, played through discomfort throughout that playoff run all the way to the finals, though. Again, if you remember that, you know, there was always the images of him wincing and you know, how many times was he day to day or questionable to even play the next game in the playoffs? And yet there he'd be on their march towards the finals and getting within a couple wins or a few wins of a championship. I mean, I guess in the long run, that probably was not the best decision, but he did it for his team and himself. He obviously wanted to win a championship as well. But here we are now. I mean, on one hand, I guess you can look at the bright side as like, well, four to six weeks from now, I mean, that could have them back within the first week or two of the season. And, mm. you know, if they clean this up, an arthroscopic cleanup in 2022 professional athlete, he should be good as new. But the flip side to that is it's the second procedure on the same knee in six months. And it is a guy who is extremely valuable to their team and extremely valuable to their defense, which was about 4.8 points per 100 possessions better. When he was on the court, 4.8 points in terms of you look at defensive rankings, that's the equivalent of about 12 to 15 spots 
So you're looking at even a good defense like the Celtics, Robert Williams on the court being a top ranked defense, Robert Williams off the court being something closer to middle of the pack. Yeah, I think it, and it's more impressive when it is a, a team as good defensively as the Celtics, mm-hmm. right? Because, uh, you know, to be almost five points per hundred better when you're on the floor, when the rest of the team is just stocked with really good defenders like that, that team's good defensively already. So that is super impressive. And I don't, you know, you don't even need the numbers to to tell you that. Like if you watch the playoffs, yeah. I think you probably saw how important he is to that defense. And I don't know. I, 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 I'm curious about the timing of this. And I'm always sort of curious about the timing of these types of procedures. Like I think we saw it last offseason with Siakam, right? Where he had that shoulder surgery late enough in the offseason that the recovery was going to eat into the start of last season. And like the same thing for Rob Williams, where they're doing it now. And that means that it's going to eat into this coming season for him, most likely. And I just wonder what that means. Like, was that always the plan uh, for them to be some, you know, just because of the proximity to his last knee surgery? I think it was now six months ago that he had that surgery to repair the torn meniscus. Um, did there have to be some grace period in order for them to like properly do this cleanup? Or is it just the fact that he wasn't physically responding to the initial sort of treatment and rehab plan? And now this is sort of a fallback or a last resort um, because that would be more cause for concern, obviously, than if this was always the plan in terms of the timing. So I think about that. Um, I guess it's hard to be too worried when we saw Rob Williams, as you mentioned, playing hobbled throughout most of the playoffs and like tweaking and re-injuring his knee seemingly multiple times throughout that run and still being as impactful as he was. Like that gives me a lot of confidence that even if it's not perfect and even if he's never going to be fully healthy and maybe injuries are always going to be a bit of a concern for him there's still a path to him being a really impactful player like even for somebody who is very reliant on his vertical athleticism his second jump like all those those hallmarks of um you know bounciness and and burst that uh young players like him can rely on and especially for like, you know, a, a rim running shot blocking center. I don't know. I, I think like the, he he still had all of that for the most part, even when he was playing through this stuff. And I guess that just makes me feel like, you know, maybe it's not going to be a long career or a long prime for him. But at least for the next few years, I don't know that it's like something I would be too concerned about i mean the concern is if he doesn't get back to the level that he was playing at last year then what's the celtics big man rotation you know it's like suddenly very very precarious when you're you're looking at 36 year old al horford and practically nothing else grant williams like yeah i mean like is like grant williams at the five to me feels more like a matchup specific you know, break glass in case of emergency type of thing than, uh, oh, he's just your full-time backup center. And then if or when Horford falls off, he's like that much more important to your center rotation. And again, Horford's 36. So uh, I, I know he has been drinking from the fountain of youth, but I don't know how much longer he can keep doing this. So if Robert Williams can't be Robert Williams, then I think that that could have some really significant ripple effects that could meaningfully impact the Celtics ability to like remain in this contender stratosphere for the next few years. And they could address that, I guess with a trade or a roster move elsewhere, but it's just, um, he's really important to them, you know, like they, they need Rob will to be Rob will. Yeah. Look, I think we've both said throughout the off season that the Celtics, uh, especially after the Brogdon move are the best team on paper, top to bottom, but if Robert Williams were to be out for an extended period of time, or to your point, if he was, you know, affected throughout the entire season, because it's also different to like play through something like this for six months before the playoffs than it is to just kind of muster everything you have for a, you know, six to eight week playoff run. Mm-hmm. 
if this is something that lingers or, you know, for whatever reason, the Celtics just are never at their full defensive strength because of this throughout the season, then I, I think it's, it's pretty significant just based on how competitive the Eastern Conference should be, based on how tight and compact the East could be, where, look, if if Robert Williams is missing some time, is the difference, you know, between even one, two, three wins, that could be the difference between finishing first, second, third, fourth, playoff match, home court, like all of that. Now, the flip side is obviously that pretty much every team will have multiple important players miss time, right? It's just that that's the nature of pro sports. Still, you don't want to be one of the teams going into the season with one of your most important players having these giant question marks around them. So I think it's more concerning than the average four to six week timeline in mid-September would usually be. But I guess we also have to see what he looks like and if he's actually back in that four to six week timeline. Because if he is, and if he is pretty much good as new, then the Celtics should be off and running. Because on paper, yeah, the team top to bottom is pretty outstanding. Yeah. Uh, sorry to change topics here quickly, but uh, breaking news via Baxter Holmes, who, as I'm assuming most people know, has been like front and center covering the whole Robert Sarver oh. uh, situation. Uh, he reports that Robert Sarver wrote in a statement that he is beginning the process of seeking buyers for the Suns and wow. the Mercury. Well, so. there you go. Uh, I think, I mean, we discussed this at length last episode. This had to have been, obviously, in the back channels, wink, wink, nudge, nudge from Silver, probably letting him know that perhaps there was more support among the ownerships of the 29 under teams maybe over the last week that insinuated to him if this did go to vote, he would get 23 plus owners to remove Sarver. And Silver, I wouldn't be surprised, told Robert Sarver that. And Sarver's response was maybe, maybe I'll just sell whether rather than having to go through the public humiliation of having the team taken from me in any event good riddance yeah i mean we saw it like the like there was a lot of public pressure public pressure can work the trailer as well their uh biggest minority owner obviously coming out with that statement saying that uh he believed he didn't want to have anything to do with robert sarver didn't think robert sarver should own the team thought he should sell uh paypal one of their biggest sponsors essentially saying that it was going to pull up sponsorship if sarver was still the owner the, the really cynical read of the situation is that whether it was like Sarver himself, Adam Silver, other owners, or just the rest of the Suns organization, and, you know, like recognizing that this was going to hit them in their pocketbooks. And that's usually what talks. And that's usually what moves people to make these kind of decisions. You know, whatever the case, I, I feel like the, the incentive was maybe finally there for, um, or, or the pressure was such that Sarver felt like this was the only way. Look, I, I don't think this is going to happen quickly. Maybe it will. I don't know. I like the. I feel like the the Clippers thing came together very quickly, right? Back in 2014. I mean, obviously that was different because it was became obvious immediately. Yeah, through Silver's own mouth that they were going to start the process of you know voting and and having the right. team taken from. Yeah, Sterling and and difference. maybe it's just like inevitable that it, that a sale will come together that much more quickly when it's like such an acrimonious situation like this and where uh, it feels like the owner is kind of being hurried out the door or his hand is being forced. But like the Timberwolves sale, for instance, I feel like took many, many, many months to really come together uh, and to be finalized. So I don't know. I don't know how long this is going to take, but uh, it does appear that like we will ultimately have a satisfactory resolution to this entire sordid affair. Yeah. And that, you know, one of the NBA's top teams, a team with the best record last year, a team that's going into the season very much in championship or bust mode is uh, going to be in the process of a sale. Sounds like, like during the course of that season, which uh, in itself is, is pretty interesting. Yeah. We can, if we have more thoughts on that, which I'm sure we will, uh, we can maybe save them for a future episode because uh, it's hard yeah. to, to piece it all together on the spot like this. But um, ultimately I think, you know, for those like us who felt like the, the punishment from the league did not <laughs> really go far enough, even though I think, you know, we said on our last episode, we weren't particularly surprised by the way that it played out. Uh, I think that we can be pleasantly surprised that um, in a very short amount of time, it got to the point where Robert Sarva felt like his only option uh, was to go ahead and, and try and find a buyer. So, I mean, do do we have anything else to say about the Robert Williams thing? We didn't really get to finish that conversation, but... 
No, not really. Um, yeah, I don't think I, I do either. Apart from the fact that I just, it really did make me realize how, how shaky the, the big man depth is behind him and yeah. how much the Celtics are going to be relying on 36 year old Al Horford. And you know, that, that bet has paid off for them so far. Certainly. Like I, we said it last year, did not expect coming into the season that the Kemba Walker for Al Horford trade to be one of the most important that any team would make over the course of the entire season. But that certainly proved to be the case. So they will continue betting on Horford, I guess, and, and see how long they can ride him. Uh, and in the meantime, hope that this, uh, this scope on Robert Williams's knee helps him uh, stay healthy over the course of the season. All right, let's put a bow on this episode. A uh, couple of fan shout outs. One of them's not so much a shout out as much as a question. Our guy Abinov in Edmonton, who we've shouted out before, one of our loyal listeners. This was one of the kind of reach outs I had had stockpiled here from the summer while we were taking some time off. This is this reach out is so old that Abby had uh, included a happy Father's Day to Wolfond. <laughs> That's how old this this is. But anyway, uh, Abinov had asked us for our favorite and least favorite or best and worst jerseys in the NBA right now. So we'll font quickly indulge Abinav out in Edmonton. Um, yeah, man, I think the worst, I really hate the lime green Timberwolves jerseys. Like okay, lime green just never works for me. Um, so like I would say even like the Mavs in general, I've never really liked their aesthetic. Um, but the, the city Jersey, they tried to do a couple years back with like the lettering that I think was supposed to look like graffiti, but yeah. kind of wound up looking like the Looney Tunes typeface instead, yeah. like the lime green and that really didn't work for me either. Um, so I, I actually think that the Mavs city jerseys this year look decent, uh, if I recall. So I won't include them in this, but yeah, those wolves jerseys are not for me. Uh, and I also think, I don't know why the jazz, like, or what they were thinking with their redesign, those new jazz jerseys are a farce and they had good jerseys. That's what I don't understand. Like they weren't in need of a rebrand in my opinion. I do like the mountain range ones. I like the old, the, the ones I think they're wearing those as their cities or their statements. I don't know. Sure. That's fine. But like they're typical, just like the, the yeah, straight, awesome. like yellow, which is like not even a nice color of yellow. No. No. Um, I just don't really understand what they were thinking there. So those are the ones I really don't like. And the ones I do really like the, the Blazers jerseys I've always loved. I would say the, the Grizzlies throwbacks like teal to me is like the polar opposite of lime green, where if like a teal Jersey is always going to work for me pretty much. I love those ones. Uh, and I guess the, the Pistons throwbacks, which I think are going to be teal as well. will probably work for me for the same reason. The so, Grand Hill era ones with the, with yeah, the horse with the, with the with the, the stallion the stallion on them. Because they did those in... Back in the day, they did those in teal, but also maroon, right? Correct. But uh, obviously, I've, I've stated my preference. So... Yeah. <laughs> um, and like the... I, I just like the... I, I like all the classics. Like I love the Bulls and like the Lakers yeah. purples and like it, it's trite, but those are the jerseys I really love. Yeah, that's a good segue for me because my least favorite ones in the NBA right now are the Celtics banner jerseys because... To your point, I like the classics. The Celtics have one of just the cleanest, simplest, classic jerseys in all of sports. Uh, you don't need to tinker that much with it. And I also just think the banner jerseys were really corny. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, like, I just didn't like the look of them. So those go down as my worst. The Also, the thing is, too, they weren't different enough from their regular jerseys to really be, like, that much of a statement. But then... They were different enough that you noticed the difference. And like, I mean, it literally looks like a banner as a jersey. Like the font was, I just didn't like it. I thought it was corny. Didn't like it. Don't mess with the good thing. Celtics have a simple, clean, classic jersey. Uh, and then my favorite, you already mentioned it, is the retro Grizzlies jersey. Whether, I mean, it should say Vancouver if it's a <laughs> retro. But even if it said Memphis on it, just that old teal with the Grizzly on it is perfection to me. All right. That answers Abinov's question. Now the actual fan shout out. Leslie Ukachukade in St. Louis, I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, reached out on Twitter and actually just um, sent us a comment after our last episode. I guess it was more directed at me because I had the Mavs as one of my underachievers who said, 
that uh, they don't think Dallas is bereft of talent outside of Luca. They have some of the best big man finishers. They have massing shooting. I have a massive shooting variance upside more than any other team. Leslie, I don't disagree with any of that. I just still think too much depends on Luca, and the loss of Brunson is going to really hurt. And as I mentioned on last week's episode, I think a lot is riding on how much of that low Dinwiddie and you know a returning and hopefully bouncing back Tim Hardaway Jr. can actually pick up. Uh, I just wouldn't bet on them being able to do what Brunson did last year, even in conjunction. And uh, and then I don't know, maybe like a Josh Green leap or something helps them or whatever. But I think they're they're going to go as far as like Supernova Lu- Luca can take them. And I think uh, at a certain point it gets unfair for, for Luca to have to do that. Uh, I did love the wood pickup though, as I've mentioned like five times. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, Leslie, thanks for listening. Thanks for reaching out. Abhinav, thanks for being a continued supporter of the show and reaching out with that question. We do have a few shout outs banked now for the next few weeks, but I still want to call out all of our listeners. If we've never shouted you out before, reach out Twitter at Joey underscore double Y O U at Joseph Cacharo, email joe.wolfon at the score.com joseph.cacharo at the score.com Instagram, find me Joe underscore 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 cash. Uh, let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, what you don't like about the show, or uh, like some of our shout outs today, even send us a question or a comment or something and we'll address it and maybe even turn it into a segment of an episode, maybe even a whole episode. So uh, with that, yeah, somehow we got to an hour despite having not a lot of basketball to talk about. Anyway, that'll change the next few weeks. We'll have some uh, basketball, I guess. I guess we won't have basketball itself to talk about. We'll have basketball topics to talk about as we start previewing the season. Until one of those episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock.